Father God, we have just sung a song about surrendering to you, and if we are honest with ourselves, God, we have to admit that, gosh, there's part of us that doesn't want to do that. There's part of us that is afraid to do that. There are portions of us that are unable to do that without the help of your Spirit. And so, Father God, your people gather together together before you this morning. We are needy. We're needy of your work in our life. We're needy of your healing, of your help, of your encouragement, of you to come into our hearts and change our hearts because there are times in which we cannot change them ourselves. Father God, we pray that you would speak to us now, that your word would take root in our lives, that indeed you would change us, that we could lay down everything before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I had the opportunity a couple months ago to take my wife and kids. We went to the zoo. And if you have or have ever had young kids, you know that things can be going really well. Everyone can be having a good time. But very quickly, you can cross a line. You can cross a line from a lot of joy to infinite chaos. And, and the wise parent learns how to see that line far off and how to hit the eject button before you cross over it. And so that was the experience we were having. We were having a good time. We saw the line coming. All of a sudden, instead of letting the kids kind of meander, it was, Daddy has one in his pack, he's got the other in his arms, my wife's carrying one. We are hustling out towards the exit and the safety of music in a car. And, um, and so we're hustling down the back exit, and we're not talking, we're just moving. You know, it's like power walking central. And, and so I think because of that, the person in front of us didn't, didn't hear us approaching. It was a, a mother and her son. I guess her son was between five and seven. And... And they were speaking quite loudly, which is going to sound odd when you hear what she was saying to her son. It really kind of took us aback. We, we see her son, he's clutching something. He, he's, just, he's walking really fast and he's huddling, you know, huddling something like it's like a mini football. And you know, he's afraid of getting tackled. And so he's moving along and, and his mother's saying to him, Now remember, if anyone asks you where you got that, you tell them it was yours. If anyone asks you, you tell them that belongs to you. You tell them that you walked in with that. Do you hear me? Do you understand? That's yours. You, you tell them you own it. If anyone asks, you tell them it belongs to you. Don't tell them you found it. Don't tell them you got it. It's yours. And, and we walk by and we see he's got a wallet in his hand. And I don't know if you've ever had one of these experiences. I'm a doofus, so sometimes I do. Where you are just so surprised at what happens, you don't even get to the what would Jesus have me do, because you're just like, really? Really? A mom is teaching her son how to steal and how to deceive. You know, we always train our kids. We always train the next generation, whether our kids or not. The question is, what are we training them for? What are we training them to? Are we training them intentionally or are we just letting them be trained without even having a plan? My coaches, teachers, relatives, parents of friends, the people I just got to know as a young person all influenced me whether they realized it or not. Every one of us in this room influences the next generation whether we realize it or not. The burdening question is, are we influencing them closer to Christ or further away from Christ. What is the quality of our influence for the next generation? Recent surveys done by 
varied researches do not paint an encouraging picture of the enduring faith of the next generation. National Study of Youth and Religion is one of the largest sociological surveys done on teenagers, and uh, it's kind of a benchmark in the field. Christian Smith, professor at UNC Chapel Hill, writes the following synthesis of the study. Quote, Our research suggests that religious congregations are losing out to school and media for the attention and time of our youth. When it comes to the formation of the lives of youth, viewed sociologically, faith communities typically get a very small seat at the end of a table for a very limited amount of time. The youth formation table is dominated structurally by more powerful and vocal actors. Hence, more teens know about television stars and pop singers, but are vague about Moses and Jesus. Most youth are well-versed about the dangers of drunk driving, AIDS, and drugs, but they cannot tell you their tradition's core values or priorities. Many parents also clearly prioritize homework or sports over church and youth group attendance. The majority of American teenagers, say Smith, appear to espouse rather inclusive, pluralistic and individualistic views about religious truth, identity boundaries, and the need for a religious congregation, end quote. It's a sobering, scary picture. And as young people leave the church more and more in their early college years often, and fewer and fewer of them are able to articulate the authentic gospel of Jesus Christ, more and more researchers are questioning, these people may have raised a hand at some service, they have made some profession, but did they ever really get saved? Because we don't see any fruit that is enduring in their lives. And it's worth asking, is there hope for this next generation? Or as Josh McDowell rather scarily writes in his last book I read, this is America's last Christian generation. Well, we always have hope when we worship a God who's able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. Let's look in Proverbs chapter 23. Here in Proverbs 23, we get God's glimpse into an action plan for the community of faith to raise up a next generation to worship the living God. Proverbs ch chapter 23, starting in verse 22. Listen to your father who gave you life and did not despise your mother when she is old. Buy truth and do not sell it. Buy wisdom, instruction, and understanding. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. Let your father and mother be glad. Let her who bore you rejoice. Three things I think that we see that we're going to sit on here. This text speaks to our attitude. It speaks to a cost. It speaks to enjoyment. So we'll look at those three together. Attitude. If we are to reach the next generation for Jesus Christ, we have to, as together as a community of faith, embody and inculcate in the next generation an attitude of humility. You know, notice that this audience is instructed to listen to their father. Now, all of us can probably remember a time when we were listening to one of our parents, perhaps our father, and the eyes just kind of glazed over, and we tried to put on that half smile, manufactured though it was, and all, you know, our mind was going was, wah, 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 wah. 
as we saw their mouth moved and thought, how long do I need to listen to this? When will this end? And yet here, in no uncertain terms, he says, listen to your dad. He gave you life. The idea is that by virtue of giving life, there is a respect, there is an honor that is due for your father. He, he's been around the block. He's older than you. He has some experience that you may need. Notice also that we're not just talking about children. The text cannot simply have children in view because what does it say then right after? It says, respect your mo- do not despise your mother when she is old. Don't despise your mother when she's old. He's saying, hey, even when you're an adult, do not despise your mother and her presumably instruction and counsel. So he's not just speaking about children. He is raising this universal value of humility because when, when we're not humble, we don't really listen to anyone except ourselves because that's fun. But it, it, it's only humility that causes us to listen and to hear, especially when, whether we're children or whether we're adults. And this, in fact, sounds a lot like something Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew. You know, Matthew 18, Jesus is speaking. He says, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Humility. It's worth asking, are we building humility as a value into the lives of the next generation? Or are we encouraging them to do what they want, when they want, how they want, and never to listen to anyone? Are we, in fact, here's the scarier question, modeling humility for the next generation, whether they are our children or not? As people come into this church and they just even see believers from afar in the gathering hall, in their same row in the pew, do they look and say, gosh, these Christians are different than every other adult I interact with because they're humble. You know, I have had a, the, the blessed experience a few times, not many times, but a few times, of seeing an adult ask for the forgiveness of a teenager. And every time I've seen it, it has been one of the most glorious things I've ever seen. Because before I was in Christ, I never saw it. I never saw a teacher apologize. I never saw a coach apologize. I certainly never heard my dad apologize to anyone. And the moments I've seen an adult ask for forgiveness or apologize to a teenager, I've seen something that the world does not demand. The world does not demand, but that the gospel makes possible, that the gospel engenders, that the gospel allows, and it's a moment that shows the reality, the validity, the fruit of the gospel to the next generation as they see there's something about this. These people, something has happened in their life that I cannot explain, that I do not see in another adult anywhere I go. Humility. You know, there's been a few times when I am embarrassed to say I have sinned in my anger and I have gone to my six-year-old and I have asked for forgiveness. And I think the average parent would say, are you out of your mind? You're the dad. You don't need to apologize. Even if you were wrong, you're in charge. You have control. But is that what the gospel compels us to do? No, it's not. Humility is a dirty word in our culture. We live in a world where pride often leads to advancement and opportunity. 
So much so that many of us act very self-confident, even if it is only to mask our own deep inner insecurity. And we don't even like to tell people or talk about other people and say they're proud or they're arrogant, right? We say, well, they're really self-assured. They're very self-confident. They're aggressive. They're strong. Sometimes we just need to call a spade a spade. The prideful person does not like to submit unless they agree with what they're submitting to. The prideful person doesn't mind reading the Bible and putting it into practice until they disagree with what the Bible is teaching. And then they enjoy elevating themselves above Scripture rather than below it. The prideful person doesn't necessarily have a hard time being in prayer, but they may not spend a whole lot of time in confession or repentance. Pride, much like gossip, slander, and division, are sins that can murder a church. They will murder this church if we let them. And yet they are not the sins that we often like to talk about. They're the white-collar sins that we are so apt to avoid in the body of Christ. And here, however, in no uncertain terms, we are commanded to be humble. In the life lived before God, deeply aware of our unity together in all being fallen, is there any other option for us other than to be humble before the Lord, knowing that we all are weak, foolish, like sheep who go astray? What an opportunity we have to point the next generation to Jesus Christ by showing the validity of the faith and modeling humility for them that they would see something different in us. But it's worth asking the question, humility does not come to us, I think, by nature. How do we fight for humility and, and put to death pride in our own hearts? A few things very quickly. I think one way we, we strive to have humble hearts is we encourage others. We take our eyes off of ourselves, and we practice the discipline of encouraging, of writing cards, of encouraging people and how God is working in them, around them, through them, in spite of them. We focus on them rather than us. We develop humble hearts by confessing sin. And if you get down on your knees and you sit there for a second and think, I can't think of anything to confess. Stay there a little longer. I'm sure it's there. <laughs> you know, we pray for other people, particularly Pray for people you don't get along with. That's a pride killer. You start thanking God for the people you can't have an easy conversation with. Thank God for His work in them. Thank Him for their gifts. Oh my goodness! Is that a hard but a beautiful path towards humility? We practice the discipline of submission. You know, submission is another dirty word in our culture. I loved it. Uh, what's her name? Michelle Bachman the other night, she talked about submission in the debate. And I didn't watch the debate, but I was amused. I read kind of a uh, Juan Williams on Fox News. He was doing some thing talking about the debate, and he talked about his, his classic example of how the debate reminded him of the 50s was how ridiculous her conversation was about talking about submission. And I thought, wow, such a dirty word. And yet the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane submits to the will of the Father in the midst of emotional agony, and he compels us to do the same in Philippians chapter 2. Submit, submission produces a humble heart to the glory of God. So we strive to be humble in order to reach the next generation. We should have an attitude of humility. The next thing we need to look at is how much wisdom costs. 
Verse 23. Buy truth and do not sell it. Buy wisdom and instruction and understanding. I guess, you know, the command to buy wisdom, truth, instruction, understanding presupposes it's worth something, right? It presupposes it has value. I don't think I need to belabor that point too much. You know, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Elders are commanded in the pastoral epistles to instruct the church in sound doctrine and refute false doctrine. These are all valuable things for the life of the church. And here he says you've got to buy it. And, and he's not talking about salvation. He's not talking about that at all. He's talking about sanctification. He's talking about growing in your witness and in your walk with the Lord. And he says it's worth something. But if it's worth something, that means we need to give something up to get it. We need to take out our proverbial wallet, take something that's, that's very valuable to us, that's very important to us, something that we could use to get something else and use it to attain what he is talking about. In previous times, this may have, in fact, been money. I mean, there's there a long stretch in time where you, a family was lucky if they had one Bible in the family. Today, good grief, I think I've got about 30 of them between my office and my house. You know, today I don't think that the cost we're forced to pay is financial. We have a lot of things at our fingertips. We have excellent Bible translations, theological teaching, ser good sermons and preaching online, worldview training, opportunities to come to a healthy church, get discipled by another believer. The cost that we have to pay that I think is staggering at this moment in salvation history for us to pay in this culture is the cost of time. It's the cost of time. Are we going to pay the cost of time in order to grow and get truth, wisdom, instruction, and understanding? Instructing the next generation and modeling a biblical faith in the lives of the next generation will cost parents, will cost church leaders, will cost the church as a whole. But are, can we really afford to not pay that cost? Vodi Bokum, he's one of the Iron Sharpens Iron speakers. He, I think he puts it rather succinctly. He says, A child without a big biblical worldview is like a ball player without a playbook. He may have spectacular abilities that will allow him to make the occasional jaw-dropping play, but more often than not, he will end up at the wrong place at the wrong time. We're still having no idea how he got there or how to get back. And every survey says that we are producing a generation that does not have a handle on a biblical worldview. So how does a parent pay the cost? Well, of Penny, Penny read one of the verses we talked about. Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not soon depart from it. You know, a parent has more power than I think the world wants you to realize. A recent survey done by the Kaiser Family Foundation so it was a blind survey of teenagers, which means teenagers took the survey anonymously. You know, there was no identifying marks. They weren't writing their name. Their parents didn't know what they were saying. Thousands of teens, blind survey, overwhelmingly reported that the most important influence in their lives was that of their parents. That they valued their parents' opinions, values, and desires more than that of their peers. And they may not make you feel that way around the dinner table. But that's what they said. In fact, an ma overwhelming majority said, we wish our parents would guide and instruct us more than they are. 
despite what reality TV will tell us. There is hope. There is hope. But the first cost a parent has to pay for training the next generation is to train themselves. How do we train someone to do something that we are not able to do? How do we train them in the way of the Lord if we are not walking in the way of the Lord? We can't train someone to do something that we are not already doing. We pay the cost by showing our children that following God is not a matter of preference. It's not a thing that can be easily picked up or thrown down. It is a matter of eternal life-giving importance. Imagine if you could ask your son or your daughter, and it's a scary thought to even think about it, if you could say, do you think we just kind of go to church and that's what we do? Or do you think that we as a family have built our lives around Jesus Christ? Be specific. That is a scary question. Would they say, yeah, I can see the way in which my mother and father have surrendered their lives to God. I can see times in which they read the Bible, they're convicted of something, and their life changes. I can see ways in which, you know, they sacrifice to serve the living God. I can see how their values are built around God's revelation. I see Christ reigning in them. Could they point and be like, here, 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 and here? Or they just tell you what you want to hear? They're watching. Second way a parent pays the cost is by disciplining their children. Proverbs 22.15 says, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from them. Now in the context of this sermon, I, I don't have the time, I think, to do this justice in the sense of saying, what kind of discipline does he mean? You know, what's the mode? What's the method? There's, there's good Christians on either side of this. Some very pro-physical corporal punishment, others very against. I don't want to touch it since I don't have time to deal with it adequately in the context of this sermon. But there's a core that they each agree on, and we'll sit on that. And the core is children need correction. They need discipline. They need guidance, whatever the form may take. They need help. And in fact, that's what the text says. Notice, the text doesn't say that children grow up predisposed leaning towards Jesus Christ. What does it say? It says that, that, that folly. They're predisposed to folly, to foolishness. They need someone to push them in the right direction. I have never met a kid under heaven who has not, at least at one point in their life, said, I don't want to go to church. I don't want to pray. I don't want to go to Sunday school. I don't want to go to youth group. And we have an excellent opportunity to... Yeah, we could... Okay, fine. I'm going to give you your desires, Jimmy. We can correct them and show them about the biggest priority in this life. Did you hear the story of the mother? She lived in Manhattan. It came out, I think, maybe six months ago in the news. Lived in Manhattan. She saw her family's life degenerating due to technology. And she thought her kids were just watching TV too much. They were online too much. Her family unit was breaking apart. So listen to what she did, if you didn't hear it. I read it in the journal. She... She told her kids, teenagers, you are no longer watching TV, getting on the internet, or using your cell phones for six months. Six months! I'm sure they went along happily. <laughs> Talk about guns blazing! After the six months, she said, you know what? This is really good. I think this has benefited our family. Okay, the fast is over. Whew. Now... We're going to have a Sabbath. One day a week, you can't do, me or you, no TV, no internet, no phones. We're actually forced to interact with each other. Wow. To play games with each other. To love each other. 
I don't know if she was a believer or not, but I was like, man, I hope she is. What a cost. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that no discipline seems good at the time, but it is useful for producing a harvest of holiness. Is there some way in your family unit right now that you could enact some needed structural discipline in terms of ordering your family to produce a harvest of holiness? Yeah, they're going to hate it. They're going to complain. They're going to whine. So what? They will anyway. It's an opportunity to seize. And it's worth it. Third way parents pay the cost is through planning. The average, I think, parent in an area like this, God bless them, spends a lot of time planning for their child's success, holistic development, and future. You know, we're, we're getting them involved in sports. We're getting them involved in ballet. You know, we're sending them to SAT prep classes. We're going, we're doing the college tour. We're trying to help them select a good career. All these are great things. I mean, if my mother and brother would have done it with me 17 years ago, I would have less student loans right now. So these are good things. And yet, I wonder if you have not already, would you, do you have a spiritual discipleship plan for your children? Not just, I want to see them get saved. Matthew 28, Jesus says, he wants to see, he says, I want disciples. He's looking for disciples, not converts. Are there specific characteristics that you could say, I want my kid to be like this, and this is the, the, the way I'm going to try to get them there. This is the infrastructure I'm going to put in place to get them there. I want them to love God with a zeal that is noticeable. I want them to have a burden for their unsaved family and friends. I want them to have a willingness to suffer for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want them to see that prayer is not an option. It is the lifeblood of a Christian. Have you thought of characteristics of life that said, this is what I need to do to put them in the place that they would grow into these kinds of people? Training entails something being taught and something being caught. We need both. So we want to teach it, we want to model it, we want to help them experience it. But you know, there's costs church leaders pay as well if we're going to see the next generation come to an enduring faith in Jesus Christ. Cost the, the job of pastors is to equip the saints for the service of the living God. Now, some of you, like me, maybe you are not the legacy of multi-generational faithfulness. And you're struggling to figure it out. And so the thought of discipling someone else sounds like rocket science. And you're like, I didn't go to MIT. I don't know how to do that. Neither did I. Um, but so, so, so uh, you know, is, there have been 75,000 books on parenting written in the last decade. 75,000. Obviously, there is, there is an obsession, a good obsession with us here. I think one of my goals as a pastor is to separate the wheat from the chaff. And there is a lot of chaff out there. There is a lot of chaff out there in terms of literature and curriculum and guidance. So, you know, you can, I encourage you to go out. There's a resource table in the gathering hall during the coffee hour. I've put just a few resources out there really quickly. You know, there's a book out there called the Jesus Storybook Bible. Most children's Bibles are more unhelpful than they are helpful, in my opinion. They have us focusing on the greatness of Moses and Abraham and trying to be like them rather than see that God is the center of everything. You know, and Jesus says in John chapter 5, all the Old Testament does what? Points to me. Everything. And so, you know, it's, it's a great Bible that goes through and shows how everything in the Old Testament points to Christ. He's the spine of the Word of God. Great book to read. 
Bible to read with your kids. There's a, you know, we, we're told, oh yeah, we do devotions. How do we do devotions with our kids? Good grief, if you didn't grow up getting devotions, that sounds, again, as foreign as planning a trip to Mars. There's a book out there called Big Truths for Young Hearts. It would be great for, I'm thinking, second or third grade all the way through high school. Ten minutes a night, you do it as a family, you read a couple pages. It has some questions, you talk about it, get your kids grounded in the character of God. There's two books out there just for every, every believer. Two, uh, a book called Knowing God by J.I. Packer, a book called The Gospel According to Jesus by John MacArthur. Those are some of the only books I've read many times and will continue to, that if I could put half a dozen books in the hands of every Christian, those would be two of them. So please, I would love to have to go and order more because they're, they're gone. Be equipped. Second way a church pays the, the cost is in terms of curriculum. You know, I love Donna Geiger. I think Donna Geiger, you know, someone once said of Donna Geiger, she's too picky in picking children's curriculum. And I think that's the best compliment anyone can get. They're too picky. She's worked very hard over the years to pick a curriculum that is God-centered, that is Bible, you know, rooted in the Word of God. Right now, her and I are working very hard to develop a comprehensive discipleship plan for kids K through 12. That if your kid comes through here, you can say, this is what they're going to get, this is what they're going to be taught, this is what they're going to be exposed to, that they will have a firm foundation to go off into college on. Pray for us as we work on that. How does it cost the church as a whole? Some of us don't have children. Maybe our children are grown up. Maybe we're not married. There is an excellent and a needed opportunity for us to minister to the needs of the next generation. You know, go, in that verse in Matthew I read, right after Jesus talks about humility, this is what he says. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Later on, you know, you probably remember the story. You know, a bunch of kids are coming up. They want to talk to Jesus. The disciples are like, hey, hey, no, guys, go play t-ball somewhere else. Jesus is busy. And he says, no, you let those kids come to me. Don't you dare get in the way of those kids come to me. Think about that for a minute. Jesus is a single man in a traditional culture. Single men in traditional cultures do not hang out with the next generation. It's not their job. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. It's exactly what Jesus is modeling. It's exactly what Jesus is encouraging. He's saying there's a place for people without kids to mentor other kids. You know, youth today, we're trying to build the next generation. It's like trying to build a skyscraper. And when you're building a skyscraper, you want as much scaffolding, positive scaffolding around that skyscraper as you can get. You want, you, you, you know, you want other people outside of the parents, pastors, teachers, just Joe random people in church, building, supporting, encouraging, speaking truth, lending support. You know, so much of church life today is segmented into age categories, and we really need to rethink this, because this is really not altogether that biblical, and it's a problem. Pastoral epistles describe older men mentoring younger men and older women mentoring younger women. How often does that happen in the life of the church? The average church doesn't have it going on. Too many churches, someone can graduate from high school and never have been talked to an adult other than their parent or their youth leader who is probably 20 years old. You know, they can, they can, they've can graduated, maybe they've sit through half a dozen services just because Sunday school didn't meet. They've never seen their parents... Um, open up their wallet and give in an offering and saw stewardship modeled. They've never seen their parents praise God through song. They've never sat there and listened to a sermon and developed the discipline of hearing the word of God. 
No wonder they leave the church. They don't know what church is. You know, in a few weeks, we're going to kick off a regular men's ministry Bible study. It's going to happen during the week, Thursday mornings, 6 a.m. Next month, we're going to start. Try to make it a time that you don't have to leave your family on a Sunday to come. You don't have to leave your family another night of the week to come. Just get your can out of bed early in the morning. Show up at 6 a.m. Enjoy some coffee and donuts with some other men. And let's let guys that are 20 years old interact with guys who've been walking with the Lord for four decades. And let's do this thing together. It's the only way we're going to fulfill God's plan for the church and we can get older generations affecting the next generation. If we want to produce lifelong disciples of Jesus Christ, we need to be humble. We need to pay the cost, whatever it is for you, to attain the wisdom and the worldview Jesus beckons us towards. And we need to rejoice in the spiritual growth of children. Verse 24 says, The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. Let your father and mother be glad. Let her who bore you rejoice. We are called to celebrate the accomplishments of the next generation. But notice specifically, he doesn't just say celebrate their accomplishments. He's rather specific. He talks about celebrating and enjoying their wisdom and their righteousness. And, and, and so you already know from Proverbs what wisdom is what? It's the fear of the Lord. And so he's saying, when you see a, a person in the next generation, whether they're three, whether they're five, whether they're 20, when you see them walking in this reverential fear, where they know that they were made by God, they know they owe their life to God, where they look to God for guidance, direction, value, enjoy that, encourage that. He says, celebrate their righteousness. You know, righteous, I mean, it's one of these dense theological terms. It means right standing. You know, he's talking, when you see a teenager, they have a right standing before God. They've surrendered their lives before the cross of Christ. They've let the blood of Jesus wash away their sins. the, The wrath of God has been satisfied for them. They are at peace. They've made the most significant decision of their lives, and they've made the right one. Celebrate that. Now, I think we as a culture, our culture doesn't really have a problem in celebrating the next generation. That's why it's the biggest marketing industry in the country. We have no problem celebrating the next generation. We have no problem celebrating good things among the next generation. We can celebrate their athletics. We can celebrate their academics. We can really celebrate them when they get into that certain college or they get that certain career. But do they know that we, more than all of those things, as important as they are, do we know we celebrate and care about their spiritual development? Do they know that that's first on our list of things that we rally around them and encourage? So I, so I just say to you, you know, next, next Sunday, that group from Guatemala is going to be here. Go up and talk to them. They paid a cost. Time, finances, fear perhaps, to go take the gospel of Jesus Christ to another country. Ask them how God moved. Ask them how he stretched them. Write him a card. Give him a pat on the back. Pray with them right there. Thank God for them. Let them know it mattered. Get on the internet. Send Kelly Quinn you know, an email in Africa and say, thank you that you have taken the gospel to Africa and you've surrendered your life to Christ rather than tried to own it yourself. Thank you. We need to let these young, this next generation know that every step of faith they take matters. Another way we will differ from the culture around us. You know, the Lord Jesus tells all of us, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one to save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. 
He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with singing. God rejoices over every step of faithfulness we take. He notices every act of obedience we take. He notices every minute when we lay down our rights and we say, I am going to take up the cross of Christ even if it takes me all the way to Calvary's Hill. He notices. He sings. Let's sing over the next generation as the church of Jesus Christ. You know, I had the opportunity, gosh, um, maybe 10 years ago, to be sitting with another pastor and a, I don't know, middle-aged father there, you know, at the diner, and we were sitting there and we were talking, and father was talking about this legacy of multi-generational faithfulness that he had enjoyed. You see, he, he grew up, and he grew up in a Christian home, and he grew up hearing all the right things. And it, it didn't really stick for him, he said, for a while until he, 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 in his case, he hit the teenage years, and something really then a chord resonated. Every morning he'd get up and he'd get up early, you know, to go to school. And as every, you know, every teenager, they get up and groaning, mumbling, bleary-eyed. And he'd stumble down the stairs in the winter, still in the dark. And there he would see the light always on in his living room. And his father would be in there in the living room, you know, at 5.30, 6 a.m. in the morning, either with his Bible in his lap or on his knees praying to the living God. And he said, you know, my parents always told me we had to go to church. They always told me we needed to worship God. But it was seeing my father sacrificially worship God that taught me that worshiping God was important. And he said, I'm going to start living that out. And here he was now 30 years later explaining about how he had some kids in college, he had some still in high school, and he was enjoying them latch on to this legacy of multi-generational faithfulness as they saw him doing the same thing he saw his father did And here they were in college, 15, 16, getting up early, getting in the Word, getting in prayer, just like they saw their father did. This is not a fairy tale. This is a possibility to leave a legacy. We are always pointing the next generation. And this is one of those things that can sound discouraging because some of us say, well, we don't have kids. Some of us say, well, I didn't do it and my kids are grown up or I didn't do it as well as I could have. And this is not a matter of guilt. This is a matter of grace and excitement because it takes a church to raise the next generation in Jesus Christ. It takes the family and the church together. We see each of them talked about in the scriptures as God's vehicles for growing the next generation towards faithfulness. So no matter where you are at, you have an opportunity to affect someone else younger with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would receive us as we are, foolish and failing. We pray that you'd carry us when we are unable to carry ourselves. We pray that you would encourage us in the midst of our weakness and regret. We pray, God, that you would embolden us to take advantage of every opportunity for the sake of the gospel in our lives, and in the lives of those around us. We ask this all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.